This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and Zadie Smith needs no introduction. Full stop. Not doing it. But the fraud... Okay, 16-year-old me was delighted when I read your New Yorker piece, and you were like, Dickens has to go. And 16-year-old me said, thank you very, very much for taking Dickens out of an English historical novel. But Zadie, thank you so much for making the time. But would you set up this new novel? Because it's really different from anything you've done before. It's quite hard to summarize. (laughs) That's what I'm learning from my first forays into trying to summarize it. It is mainly about a novelist who's a real person. Everybody in the novel is real, more or less. William Harrison Ainsworth, who lived in my neighborhood almost 200 years ago. And he was a very nice man, uh, very convivial, had big dinner parties with lots of writers who you would remember, people like Dickens, Thackeray, Wilkie Collins, uh, lots of people. But he was also a really, really bad writer. (laughs) He was a terrible writer. And I, I remember hearing about him from my neighborhood. It was just a funny idea, someone who was so nice, so popular. He sold so many books. He was bigger than Dickens for a while. He became friends with Dickens. He was seven years older than Dickens. And I love that combination of being so nice, so popular, and so bad. And so it always amused me, and I always thought I would like to write a novel about him one day or a comic novel about him. And then just in the course of reading about him, his story collided with another story I've been interested in for a long time, which is the story of the Tichborne claimant. And that story is about a poor working class man who arrived in London from Australia. He was English, though, and claimed to be this missing aristocrat who'd been missing for about 25 years. And with him was a a black man, a servant of the family who'd once been a slave, who swore that this man was the real Roger Tichborne. And that story also has interested me for years. And it turned out, oddly, in a coincidence, that one of the young men around William Ainsworth's table when he was young, a poet called Keneally, years later gave up poetry, became a lawyer and became a lawyer on the Tichborne case. So these two things I've been thinking about for decades, really, came together. And um, so I wrote a novel about them. See, I told you it was difficult to summarize. (laughs) Actually, I don't think it is hard to summarize because all I can think is, God, what a small world, right? Like, Yeah, it was a small world. I think at first I thought, oh, this is so mystical and crazy and and all about you, Zadie, that this, these two things should be combined. <laughs> when I started reading about the Victorian mm-hmm. period more and more, it just was a small world. It right. was a small world. People knew each other within journalism, literary life, music. It was just small. And then even recently, I've been reading Virginia Woolf's diaries, and the amount of time she's walking through London and just bumps into her friends. Like every day, yeah. she's like, oh, I bumped into, and I bumped into... So you just have to imagine a London which would be more like, I would say, present day Rome. I've lived in Rome. And in Rome, it's totally possible to bump into someone twice in the same day, in the morning and in the afternoon. It's a small city. I love Rome, but it's, you know, when you have those clocks which say Rome, Tokyo, Paris, York, Rome is delusional. (laughs) Rome is is a gorgeous place, but it is nothing like New York, Tokyo, Paris or London. It is a small parochial beautiful town and London was like that in the 19th century it was small and you you could bump into people and you you could run into them at different times in your life so it's not as big a coincidence as I had imagined yeah which kind of gets me though at the claimant right you refer to him as the claimant throughout the book which is a device I love so I'm just going to stick to that but 
how this dude thought he was going to pull it off when he's operating in this very small world. Now, granted, he's claiming to be someone who was killed in a shipwreck, but I mean, it takes a little audacity to be like, hi, it's me. I mean, it is a little bit, the photographs are around, but they're not so common. So it is a photograph of the claimant and of the real Sir Roger Pitchbourne. And I don't know, you can convince yourself of anything. I think of that right. dress on the internet, you know, you, I, I really oh, yeah, yeah. it was gold and silver. Some people thought it was blue and gray. And those photos are printed in the paper together. Their eyes, the two men had similar eyes. One was at least 300 pounds heavier than the other. But it was just possible. And it definitely takes audacity. But I mean, when I was writing it, I was thinking about Trump and it's audacity to think you can be president when you're a reality TV show hero and a kind of New York shyster. But sometimes it's the audacity itself which convinces people. The British public bought into that case and you capture all of that energy. And Ainsworth's wife, she's a great character. There's also his housekeeper. These two women. There's two women. So he he had married first when he was young and had three children and his mm-hmm. wife died. And so he was in the middle of like a very successful literary career. And I guess he thought, I need a woman in this house. I can't carry on my life with these three small children and no woman. So he brought into his life his cousin's widow, mm-hmm. um, called Eliza Touche, and became his housekeeper. And in my novel, his lover. And that is the only thing I cannot, I guess, be certain of in the novel. From reading his novels, uh, of which there are so many, over 40, there is a, a strong suggestion that he was having an affair with his own cousin. It seems okay. to be a recurring thing in a lot of his novels, these kind of uh, surreptitious sexual affairs. He's with his cousin for about 20 years. And then in real life and in my novel, he married his maid. And his maid was like a very young woman in her 20s. She already had a baby by him and he was in his 60s. It would have been a scandal, but they kept it pretty quiet, I think. She's a working class woman, unlettered, illiterate. And it was really interesting to me to try and imagine that marriage, what it must have been like. I mean, you've kind of famously said that when you sit down to write a novel, you start at the first sentence, you finish at the last. Like you're not planning. But this is wildly different from NW or Swing Time or One Teeth or On Beauty or The Autograph Man. I mean, this is just a whole... You've stumbled across two storylines. Yeah. <laughs> How did we get here? <laughs> it was, a, you know, to me, I guess they're not as different as they seem. I mean, I, I know they're stylistically different, but I, I have the opposite feeling sometimes that writers have obvious obsessions and they get embarrassing as you, as mm-hmm. you begin to repeat yourself over the years. So to me, they're quite close. But definitely the way of writing it was a little bit different in that I had a true story, which was the most freeing and enjoyable thing but otherwise some things were similar like I quite often write the end first or the last page you know and then the challenge is is to try and get there you know start from the beginning and get to that final point so that was the same I wrote the last chapter entire and then the one thing which was different is I gave myself a kind of uh deadline I was really interested in how Victorian novelists wrote their novels first of all at such speed to a print deadline every two weeks and reading those novels, like, I know that we have this very kind of precious way of writing novels now, right? We, we mm-hmm. take like seven years. Sometimes we do multiple drafts or, or people say they do. And I just thought 
almost all fiction until very, very recently, until the mid 20th century, was written in this straight ahead way, start at the mm-hmm. beginning, end at the end. And I wanted to do it again. So I had two, three friends who I imagined as my subscribers. And I just wrote, I wrote the novel like that every two weeks, just keep going forward, forward, forward. Obviously, I had the luxury Dickens didn't have that at the end I could go back over it and tidy things up. But in, in fact, he did that too. You know, when he when he did publish, he would get back whatever he'd sent to the newspapers and change things and do new introductions. And he did make edits. I found doing that, I think what Victorian novelists found is that your subconscious writes a lot of it and that that's not a bad thing. To allow your subconscious free reign is, if you can dare to do it and you're not too embarrassed, is quite um, useful. The pacing of the book is really great. And you do this thing where the chapter lengths vary and you're giving all of, I mean, it's very Victorian, right? Like you're doing the thing that you're, every chapter has a title, everything else. So the idea that you're doing this on a two-week deadline, I'm I'm just taking a moment to sort of think about what that looks like. The work is beforehand, all the reading, all the thinking happened a long time ago. So the writing is, is more automatic. And I really wanted to kind of mess with the reader a little bit because I've been so struck by people saying it's like a Victorian novel because, of course, if you pick up real Victorian novels, the sentences are completely different, unbelievably mm-hmm. lengthy, yeah. very weighted. The chapters are extremely dense. So I, I knew I didn't want to do that. From the beginning, mm-hmm. I thought I want to make like a postmodern Victorian novel. Like I want it to be in tiny little chunks. I want it to be, and ideally, it didn't work out this way. I wanted it to be short. You know, I had this yeah. dream of like, 60,000 words, but of course that dream dies hard <laughs> for me every single time. So it's 100,000 words, which is still short for me. And to try and make it as speedy as possible and to work with the attention span of, of the 21st century, I wanted to see if I could get the same density and feeling, and but but in these tiny sections. Like I really wanted to see if that would work. Yeah. I just want to riff off of something you said in this piece from The New Yorker about working on the fraud where you're like, well, you know, if you're an English novelist, eventually you're going to write a historical, even if you try not to. And you had sort of, I don't, I can't tell if you actively tried or it just wasn't going to happen until it happened. But I mean, here you are writing a historical, but also you've got this great line about how, isn't it in the DNA of a novel to be new? And it's kind of what Hilary Mantel did, right? I know, but it annoyed me about Hillary. Not that she, I mean, I was such a huge fan of Hillary's years when everybody, as far as I was concerned, was ignoring her. Like I had a great head of rage about Hillary Mantel for a long time, that this was a woman I considered to be a genius of the first order. And yet all the men of her generation, who I also admire a great deal, but it would just blow my mind that sometimes they'd never heard of her or, and I knew her readership was tiny. She'd written 12 amazing contemporary novels that I just couldn't understand why people weren't reading them. And then Beyond Black happened. Um, Right. It really wasn't until she sat down to write those historical novels that everybody paid attention. And that really bugged me that, you know, in England, you can be such a startling and original talent, but until you've written a historical novel, you can't get them to pay attention. So I didn't read those historical novels for years. And I didn't read them once I started writing this book because I didn't because I was scared because I knew how great it was and I didn't, I didn't want to scare myself. So the first thing I did when I finished this novel was pick up Wolf Hall. I mean, a spoiler, it's it's incredible. <laughs> I knew it would be, but I also knew it, there would be something radical about it. And it is radical. It isn't at all 
Elizabethan in style or mode. It's very curious, that novel. It's written in a very strange voice that I, I don't have any language for. It, it's yeah. kind of in the present tense, it's kind of in his consciousness, but it's it's very Hillary and it's very much of the body. Like it's completely aware of what it was physically like to live in this extreme moment. So it didn't disappoint me at all, but I still hope, you know, for younger novelists that, that this is not the pathway that every young novelist in England has to go down, like <laughs> to be ignored for 25 years and then and then right. write a novel and get some attention. So that hasn't been my situation. Obviously, I, I, I was lucky in ways that Hillary wasn't when she was young. So I, I come to historical novel from a slightly different place. But yeah, also always wary of the part of it that feeds into a great nostalgia in England. So I guess once I wrote it, one, another thing I said to myself was, I don't want to see it on, <laughs> it sounds crazy to say, but I don't want it to be on like school lists. I want it to be, I want something about it to be unsuitable, not safe for the office. <laughs> so once I started writing it, I wanted to make it not cosy because I don't find the Victorian period cosy. I think they were interesting people, radical people, very surprising, very perverse. So I wanted to keep all of that in the novel. And so, of course, I'm happy if, if young people read it, but but I don't want it to be cosy in that way. Yeah, the fraud felt really sort of wildly modern to me as I was reading it. And it's partially the characters because, yes, I get that they're Victorians, but it's exactly what you're saying. Like Victorians were weirdos. Yeah, they're really weird. Yeah. And I think we lose sight of that really quickly because also we don't really teach the Victorian, right. like we don't teach the actual history That's it. of There's the Victorian era. So we're all just thinking everyone's swanning around in funny clothes, right? With right. funny accents, eating funny food. And that's kind of how we look at the whole thing. But you were saying this earlier in the show that you see the connection between all of the novels. And when I was reading The Fraud, all I could think was, of course, this is how we get to all of the earlier books, because right. this is England and this is how you get the culture that you're writing about, whether it's, you know, the 90s or the early aughts or, right. you know, NW was technically, I mean, you set that contemporary, right? It came yeah, out yeah. in 12 and yeah. it was supposed to be present. Day. Yeah. So like, that's how we get to all of those places. That's right. how we get to the language. Like the continuum is is absolutely there. I'm still just kind of yeah. giggling over the fact that here you are doing this thing that makes perfect sense. Like you grew up writing these novels. You said even that the English novel changed your trajectory. Right. I think it's such a deep part of my life, English literature, but I've also always had questions. So I'm not someone who is usually quick to anger, but I have to say when I was researching this novel, the absence in my education made me angrier and angrier. The more I, because I, I guess until then, I mean, I went to a very, what you would call like a big rough public school. So the holes in my education are many because it was a struggling school and there wasn't a lot of money and there were 2000 kids in it. But this is something different because like my kids are in a similar schools right now. And you have, you know, these great efforts in what they call black history month and all the rest of it. But to me, that concept, black history month falls so far short of um, what I consider to be history that it's almost uh, besides the point. Like I, I really couldn't believe reading about the Victorian period that I hadn't learned about the relationship between England and Jamaica, because without mm -hmm. any exaggeration, that is 19th century history. Right. Like, you have to go out of your way. Like you really have to go round the houses to avoid that topic. It, it, it's not a side issue. Noticing that 
really struck me. Ireland too. Ireland is another amazing example. Like my husband is Irish. If you grow up in England in these schools and you're not learning about Ireland in the 19th century, that is ideological. An effort has been made. And so it really, it really struck me because I guess when I was growing up, I, I did think of my education, of course, because it was free and being given to me as basically benign at some level. And to see this extraordinary absence of information. While, by the way, we're very busy learning, at least in my school, about American slavery, American yeah. civil rights. We've got loads of information about that. I can give you chapter and verse about what's going on in Mississippi. So I really saw it as a deliberate absence. And that began to really annoy me. And so writing the book was very kind of educational and healing, both when I think about me and my husband as like working class subjects of England in two different places. Uh, it was just incredibly educational. Like I really was educated writing this book. So it was a it was a good thing. Yeah. And I grew up in New England where people really have an Anglophilia that is kind of wild. Like we are the home of yes, Masterpiece I mean, Theater, I went right? To for a while, I remember. Experiencing. Yeah. It's wild. It's completely yeah. wild. And I'm like, you know, we had a revolution, right? I am also deeply fond of England, but but I can't be fond of a falsified version of it. If I live somewhere and I'm from somewhere, I like to know everything about it. To me, it doesn't, it's not a matter of loving it less or more. It's just interesting. And I think every people needs to know their own history in full. It's just a matter of human dignity. I felt coming out of this book, a sense of my own kind of personal dignity. It's it's embarrassing not to know. Well, and I think too, I mean, especially when I look at, I'll use American history, obviously, as an yeah. example. It's like how messy our history is and the stories we tell ourselves about our history and the different pieces of it. And you're just like, hi, there are actually multiple versions and right. several of those, you know, never get taught, as it right. were. I mean, but with the fraud, I mean, part of what I appreciated about it is the sense of sort of, with good historical fiction, the sense of time travel right, is pretty significant. that You can step outside of the world, but you can still see the framework for where we are now if you're looking closely enough. I mean, the most magical example of that, I didn't get close to it one day, maybe when I'm older. There's a book called The Blue Flower by Penelope Fitzgerald. Yeah, I love that book. And that book is time travel. Like, I don't know how else to describe it. You feel like you are in 18th century Germany or as close as you can ever imagine being there. And it's not because the language is 18th century German or flowery in some way, or it's just, there's almost no metaphors, no similes. You're just there. It's like complete clarity. And when I read that, I thought that is the dream that you're, you just put people there because you want to put them there and that they feel that they're there. And um, there's no higher version of historical fiction to me than that. The feeling of being transported. Part of that, being transported to, though, is you've always talked about how a writer should have a sense of urgency when they're creating whatever it is, right? Like you don't right. separate essays from fiction and, and oh. what have you. But what's the urgency behind a novel like The Fraud? I mean, is it really just making right. sure that the truth gets told and the history gets told and that we understand? Where, like, is that it's thing that's driving this? To me, it was the most urgent book I ever wrote. <laughs> yeah. You know, I spend my days in the contemporary moment with everybody else, hearing versions of the past, which to me are so banal and so flat. I just really noticed this tendency, both online and with people I spoke to, the idea that people of the past are like 
half-blind, old-timey versions of us, and we are the perfected version. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what I couldn't understand about that is that two things are being said simultaneously. We're the perfected version, okay, and also this is a trash fire reality of awfulness. I was trying to understand how can both things be true in people's mind? We're the best version of people that there's ever been. Yet reality is a trash fire. To me, it was like this strange contradiction in the way people spoke about the present. So I really wanted to understand why they thought people of the past were so pathetic and so flat compared to themselves. And also why they felt this, to me, perfectly neoliberal idea that the past only gets worse and we only get better and that truth and justice are always with us. That concept I really was fascinated by. So I realized you could only think of a way about the past if you don't know it. You can only think, oh, that's my phone, woman. Looking back at Victorian marriages, when I talked to people, I realized they thought that Victorian marriages were these kind of Puritan affairs, um, blessed by God. Like when you actually read about Victorian marriages, the first thing that becomes clear is there's about three people in each marriage, mm-hmm. at the very least, usually way more. Many people have two families, many people have secret children. Like polyamory was not invented in 2016. This has been going on for a very long time. People have been trying to find solutions to the domestic since there has been the domestic. So that was, I guess, what really, really struck me is that one of the things we get as time goes by is a language for things. But that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that things are suddenly created by language. Things have always existed. I just read Tom Cruise's wonderful book, The New Life. I was going to ask you if you'd read that. because Yeah, I felt like a beautiful companion piece. Like I don't know Tom Cruise, I've never met him, but a beautiful example of when novelists are working in tandem, they don't even know they are. So he's working in a period where we're just beginning to get the words for feelings we've had since the beginning of time. And I'm working in a period where those feelings are still there, but there's no language yet. He's, he's working at exactly the moment where there's not only language, but after language comes law. You can actually do things in the law when there's no language, as of course, for lesbian community in England, there was no language, there was no law, so there's no community that doesn't exist in the public imagination. He's dealing at the moment where that changes. So I was just fascinated by the idea of the mistaken, I think, contemporary conception that it's only with language that these things come into being. And as masters of contemporary language, we must be masters of concept. But that's, of course, not the case. These ideas have always existed that language doesn't always appear for them, that's another matter. But people have always had these feelings, whatever they were. Feelings for freedom, feelings of sexual interest or perversion or dominant. These things are eternal. How we deal with them is is how our history changes. Well, and the idea too, I mean, the way the public responds, and I am going to step away from Tom's novel for a second, only because, one, it's great, but I could keep going on that tan. It's so, so good. If you haven't read The New Life, just go get it. But the way, too, that language shapes both Eliza's understanding of the world and Sarah's, the wife, right? Like the way they respond to the court case, the way they respond to Andrew Bogle, who is a slave from Jamaica, who becomes a household staff member and keeps insisting that the claimant is, in fact, who he says he is. And just watching how the three of those characters use language to understand where they are in the world and where this case it's really smart and it moves it moves the way that nw does right like the language there for me 
kept swinging and swinging and swinging. And I, it really, I'm very fond of NW. So if I keep coming back to it, it's just because I really love that book. But again, what you're doing with language is wild. I want, that's another thing which felt urgent to me that the, one of the problems with the past, well, I guess since 2008, since the real explosion of Silicon Valley is that that is an American phenomena. It's an American algorithm and it has spread throughout the world. And one of the things it's done, it's a kind of American colonialization of consciousness is that it makes everywhere America. And that I really chafe against, not because I think England is any better or worse than America, but it is different. And the insistence on its difference is part of what I wanted to do in this novel. And already I, I've been struck, like giving it to people, particularly younger people, some of the things they're amazed by in it are things that I'm sure British people would be amazed too. But for instance, they don't understand why is Bogle in court for two years giving testimony? Because in American world, no black man could stand in a court and give testimony like right. that in 1873. Right. So the lesson from that is not, oh, England was so much more progressive, or, but it is that we did not have racialized laws in the same way. It's important to know that because these differences have enormous ramifications in our history. And if you think everywhere is America, you're going to misunderstand a lot of the history that you see across Europe, in Africa itself, in India. These are not the same country. And something about American narcissism about itself and about its own history creates a flat earth for everybody else. And I think the rest of the world really wants to insist on its separate identity. You know, we are not you. We have different ideas. We've had different histories, and that is important. So to me, finding these facts, all I wanted to do was put them there just to remind people that things moved in different ways in different places, mm-hmm. and it created different kinds of people, different consciousness, and different histories. So a lot of what I think people find surprising in the book is it, nothing to do with me. It's just that it goes into an absence that has been kind of flooded by American knowledge, American ideas, and American algorithms. Yeah, that American, the new American colonialism, that is a really, I'm going to steal that phrase, I'm sorry. It's just, that's exactly what those algorithms are. And especially when you look around America's legacy, not just in Africa, but also in Asia, like, there's a footprint there that I think not everyone is fully versed in. Right. It's quite exhausting for all of us under your heel to be re-educated in this very particular way. So I found it quite freeing to be back in the past and remembering that Jamaica is Jamaica, that England is England, that their relationship, incredibly brutal over so many centuries, is a particular relationship that I want to think about particularly, separately from the American one. Yeah, you'd written an article, I think for The Guardian, about the book Black England. Right. And the author in that talks about how the past is basically an entirely separate country. Like the way we think about place, the way we think about time, you know, novels are the perfect place to play with all of those ideas, right? Obviously, you do it with every book. Right. And to give up your feeling of superiority over the past, like that feeling to me has no political content. The political content of a novel like this to me is to, it's not to say to yourself, how on earth did a country population ever live on top of such utter misery as Jamaican slavery and go about its day without paying any attention to it? How, who were these people and how evil were they? That's an idea without political content. What is more political to me is to think 
Are there situations right now in which we also sit upon bottomless misery, economic desperation, and even slavery, as right. in the weaker Muslims right now? Yeah. What are going about our day? And the answer is yes. <laughs> These people are not unimaginable to us. When you say they're unimaginable, you're saying, I can't conceive of myself in that position. But if you're wearing a T-shirt from H&M, if you've got an iPhone in your hand, you are in that position. You are profiting of the misery of millions. We all are, myself included. So that to me is a political thought. Again, this comes back to why I kept feeling like this novel was so modern as I was reading The Fraud. And again, yes, the language isn't particularly Victorian, right? But you just, you create this world and I'm so caught up in these characters and you're bouncing back and forth between London and Jamaica. And also while I'm reading it, though, I'm thinking of this play that you had done, which I saw at BAM last spring, The Wife of Wilsden. And Wilsden is a big piece of the fraud. It's been a big, it, obviously, NW and Swing Time and, and White Teeth and everything. But talking about place, right? Like you lived there for the first 30 years and then you left and now you're back. Where does place fit into it? Where does Wilsden specifically fit into how you can write about what you write about? Um, I never thought it would be like this. <laughs> I knew writers like this who had this preoccupation with place. I didn't think it would be me. It's been a surprise to me. Okay. I do know, like when I see with my brothers who used to be rappers, that there is certainly something about the class we're from, that your hood, your landscape is seems to have significance to you. It does seem to me the richer you are, the less your locality matters, right? That is the very kind of context of money really is that it moves and you move like a kind of free moving node of capital and it doesn't really matter where you are. It nothing really belongs to you in that sense. The further you go down the social scale, people obsess about their neighborhoods, they'll kill for them in certain mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because the streets are all you have. And that's what hip hop is about, basically, about the fact the streets are yours. You've got nothing else but this block. And I'm very far from, you know, that kind of extreme deprivation that you see in, I don't know, like British grime, for example. But I think I grew up in a neighborhood where the neighborhood mattered. And I think it mattered for my brothers in their music and it's it's mattered in my writing. I'm also just incredibly fortunate that it happens that the borough I was born into is the most interesting place. It's so interesting. (laughs) It's so interesting. It's interesting historically. It's interesting in its people. Often when I'm walking down Kilburn Harrow with my husband, he'll say, because he comes from a a monoculture, he comes from Ireland. I cannot believe how many different people are on the street. Like if you froze them at two o'clock in the afternoon and asked each person, where are your people from, you get 120 answers. It's like Queens. It's exactly yeah. the same scenario. And people from Queens that I've met are obsessed with Queens. And you've got a lot of TV shows that are obsessed with Queens and music from Queens. It's like that. It's just endlessly interesting. It's hard to be bored by it. Yeah, Queens sometimes feels like it has its own accent. Yeah, it's an accent. And my party trick in England, if I'm doing a reading in a signing queue, if someone... I like to think I can tell the difference between North and South London every single time. And it's specific. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, North and South London just made me think Caleb Azuma Nelson loves NW the way I love. He loves NW the way I love NW. And it was just it was so much fun talking to him about how that book helped him create Open Water and then Small Worlds, which are two of my favorite. I mean, Small Worlds is really. That is great. And sometimes we meet in the middle. We've had 
dinner in the middle of the city, but he doesn't seem to come north, and I know I don't go south, so it's going to have to be a friendship just at the river and on email. God bless him. But hey, can we talk about the influence of American editors on your work? Because you've, and you've said this a couple of times, and I think this is really kind of fascinating, that you've said your writing has actually gotten sharper because of multiple edits, because of the process, because of, you know, being able to sort of strip it down. And, you know, I don't always think of you as a super stripped down writer, but I know, like, even if I'm reading you in the New York Review of Books, right, which will give you more space than most places. Right. I'm just going to fly through that piece. I think I've just, I feel like I've been talking about America in this podcast and I need to now rewind and say without America, I really would not be the writer I am. Okay. The literary system there, particularly literary journalism, is of such a high standard that you all should pat yourselves on the back. I mean, you do quite often, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> we really do. It's just completely different. It's a different tradition. So in England, we have Grub Street and Grub Street, the point is, Write the piece the day before it is published, make the biggest headline, make the biggest fuss, reveal the scandal, make the argument. And English newspapers still work like that. If if I get asked to write for an English paper on Tuesday, they're going to publish it on Wednesday. Whereas if, if I'm asked to write something in America, I've got six months, you know, a lot of the time. And it's a lot of work and a lot of editing and it goes back and forth. The thing I think it taught me most of all is never to be humiliated or angry or obstructionist about edits because someone is trying to help you make less of a fool of yourself and that's never a bad thing and New York Review with Bob particularly he just did it in such a a restrained way it would just be a little note saying we don't use this word because we find it to be meaningless (laughs) and then I'd look at the word and think you know what that word is meaningless People just say it all the time, you know, if you're overusing the word neoliberal or, you know, just what do you actually mean? What do you what do you actually mean by that word? That was his point. It wasn't ever to, sometimes I'd argue with him. I said, well, that's a political word and I need to use it in this political context. He's like, sure, but it's overused. Is there another way to say it? Can you be more precise? And that habit was really important to me. And so I like white teeth and everything, but the kind of rambling you know, six ways to try and say one thing. I, I was really cured of that in America. Yeah, well, also, I mean, you were, what, 21 when you started that book? 24 yeah. when it was public? I mean, I loved that book when it came out, certainly. I mean, especially as a biracial woman, I was like, what is this? Who is this person? I've never heard. This is great. Energy. Energy is very good. Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing where you can pass it on to a young person. And this is not... That's what I like about it, that teenagers, read. that's my favorite thing. But I am also on the side of, you know, adult reading, because I am an adult. Mm-hmm. And I, like, I like to read things by adults. And I, I like to support the idea that adult writing can exist. So for me, White Teeth is a teenager's book written by someone mm-hmm. who's much more than a teenager. And it's it's lovely for that. But I personally find this principle of trying to say what you want to say with the least words possible mm-hmm. uh, to be an important principle. Precision matters. Like precision really matters. And I think the writers I most appreciate are also writers who read a ton and they read across, you know, the reading informs the writing, right? Like that's, that's what all of this is ultimately about. The more the the variety is what helps. So, you know, I spent so long in the 19th century recently when I finished the hunger for new things 
debut novels, anybody thinking differently about anything is very strong in me. You know, I really like to know what's going on and what's good. Someone can tell me their novel is new and young and radical, but if I pick it up and it's badly written and, you know, repetitive and then I'm I'm done. I don't, you know, and it, the same goes for I can be told that somebody is, you know, in their 70s and couldn't possibly write a good, but then the book might surprise you. Like I'm always, I've learned to be open and I, and I, I very much dread the kind of middle-aged novelists who can't bear to read new things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a death knell. I also need great sentences. Yeah, you have to be able to write. So I really began to feel sometimes when I was in New York, you meet young writers, they try and argue you into the idea that the book they just written was good, but you can't, you can't argue it. It's not a matter of like arguing. There's just me and the novel by myself in my room. You're not, can't sell it to me. You can't, you can, I mean, you can hand sell it to me, but in the end, it's a very intimate thing between a reader and, and the page. Yeah. It is. And a reader's always going to bring their own experience to right. whatever they're reading, but you know, especially for something like the fraud, right? Like some of Britain's history, right? But obviously schooled here. But I didn't feel like I was missing anything. I didn't feel like I didn't have all of the parts, right? Because I had the characters, I had the language, I had the movement of the story. And I was laughing a lot because novel by you. I mean, obviously, you're not going to leave out the funny bits. But I didn't feel lost in any point. I was just like, okay, I'm just going to hand myself over because this is a novel by Sadie Smith. I always felt that as a kid, that there were some novels that I was blocked from in some way or that you need prior knowledge and mind that in a novel. And it's always the case that there'll be lots of different levels of reader, readers taking lots of different things from it. I personally always want to leave the, the door open so that somebody can walk through. And also with the existence of the internet, the most beautiful thing about the internet is that your reader is a cyborg. Your reader can go and find out whatever they want. They can Google at any moment. So the door is really wide open. You just have to kind of nudge it and say, look at this, look at that. If they want to find out about the Lady Blessington or the real mm-hmm. trial, they can do all of those things. They can see pictures of everybody. I don't need to spend too much time telling you what these people look like. If you want to find out, you can find out. The novel can be many different things depending on your interest, you know, and that I like to give that freedom. So can I go back for a second for something, a piece you wrote years ago in the New York Review where you're saying, in defense of fiction, Right. right. Like you're not arguing that fiction needs to go away, but, 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 but do we know what the novel used to be? Like, can we just lay that ground for a second? Because I think there's so many times where I see people coming to the novel in a way where I'm like, well, you're kind of missing a little bit, right? Like it's a way to play with time. Sometimes I would think, particularly when I was in New York, I'd meet sometimes writers and think, if you hate the novel this much as a form, you don't have to write them. <laughs> you could choose, you could do something else. Like no one's got a gun to your head. You could maybe just if you're so filled with contempt for this form, then you know, don't sweat it. There's like there's other things to do. But at the same time, the novel to me does have to move and change. People do have to come and break it. They have to do new things with it. But some of those new things can sometimes be about reaching back. Like when I was writing this, I really personally for my own sanity, wanted to remind myself that I am capable of reading. I am a human being whose mind can hold more than one thought at the same time, who can follow different threads of things, who can deal with time moving, 
who can remember how memory works. It doesn't go from A to Z in a simple way that it moves about. I am a grown-up. Basically that, that I am a (laughs) grown-up. I wanted to write books for grown-ups, remember that I'm a grown-up, remember that I can read things. Yeah. This is not Ulysses. It's not even Mrs. Dalloway. And if people mm-hmm. were able to buy these like little penguin, you know, cheap novels and deal with quite complicated ideas in 1940, 50, 60, I want to know that I can still do that. I can still read and that other people can still read and that we haven't completely been flattened or debased by our daily reading habits. Because the fact is we're reading more than any humans have ever read in the history of the world. What are we reading? We're reading that phone day and night, sometimes from the moment we wake up. And just like everybody else, like I don't have the phone, but I'm reading on my laptop and I open the article and my eyes are jumping down the page. I get the headline. I look at the photograph. I can't concentrate. I'm not reading that thing properly. And then when I turn to the novels, I'm like, oh my God, what do you, what do you want from me? <laughs> Novelist. And then I remember that this person once has respect for my brain, the way that Elon Musk and the others have no respect for me, none. They think I'm an idiot, just a complete shill. They just have no respect for me as a human being. But this other person who might be long dead really thinks I'm capable of this act, reading. It's respect. They respect me. So I want to do that for readers. I want to say you can do this. You can read. You used to be able to, and I know you can again. I have this thing about, you know, you can read a short story while you're standing online waiting for something. Like if you're scrolling your phone, you could read a short story. Oh, also you could just like stare into space. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. And I get a lot out of it. Like most of my day is spent just standing around looking at things. I'm just looking at things all the time. And I used to be in a world where I was doing that with other people. Now I'm alone. At this point in my life, I now actually consider it a stupid kind of responsibility. Like, if I'm going to be one of the few people who's like looking at things, then it's kind of my duty to like carry on writing. Does that mean we get more stories and more essays? Because I kind of really enjoy those as well. Yeah, I love, I mean, I love writing the essays. I, I do sometimes have the slightly sad feeling that um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm salting myself or other people, but. I, I like my essays. I don't think they're that great. I think what's happening is that in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. I really think that is what's happening. I think we're spending so much time reading these very, very flat, fast things that any essay is even like basic. But if I was writing the same essays, and this was 1997, I don't think they'd be of interest to anyone. I think they'd just be an essay, so just some literary essays. Oh, yeah, they're fine. I think it's just a it's a sign of where we are that it seems like they're complicated or interesting. They're not that complicated and they're not that interesting. They're just written. And it's been a while since <laughs> we remember what writing looks like. Honestly, I just always think they're fun because I'm kind of curious where your brain is gonna go. Because I don't think you write the same thing over again. I'm like, okay, I'll up, read this. <laughs> pick up Montaigne, pick up Virginia. This this used to be what an essay was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Instead of just like you know, I have an idea. Screaming for it. It's just an essay, and and I was trained to write them, and so was everybody I went to college with, and like we were trained to write that way. It's just it's just what essay writing is. I just think in the present context, because 
because I'm not super online, so I'm not always mm-hmm. aware of what's going on. I just write, I'm just writing and I stayed still, is what I'm saying. <laughs> it probably just looks strange from wherever you guys are. I'm still in 1997, for better or for worse. And it just perhaps looks peculiar if, if you're in 2023. You know, it's funny when I think about it, though, like the way literature ages, right? You said you'd read all of this, a bunch of novels by Ainsworth, and I can think of many things I would rather do than read sort of popular fiction from certain periods. Like there's just some stuff where I'm like, nope, can't do it. The way we think of literature sort of being this timeless thing that sort of, you know, is held over us. And it's like, well, actually, no, it's a response to the moment. Yeah. It's always a response to the moment. Sometimes it carries on because the details are there and you're like, oh my God, this is wildly modern or this is really interesting. Or like Virginia Woolf, perfect example. Like if you think about how radical her sentences were at first and now it's like, oh yeah, my mom read. Right. I mean, I happen to love it. And it stops being legible. Like I just read Mrs. Dalloway and what survives of Mrs. Dalloway is the character itself, the personalities of the people and the landscapes. But there's so much news in Mrs. Dalloway. There's like actual news, daily stuff she was putting in. That stuff is illegible. But I was lucky to be given an annotated version, which someone just published. So there's endless footnotes. and But it's, it's not pleasant to read that way. Like you have to keep stopping. But it reminded me that when you're putting the contemporary in that shallow way at the level of just facts, mm-hmm. just about mm-hmm. what's going on with the prime minister, blah, 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 it becomes utterly illegible and it becomes illegible really quickly. It, that doesn't matter. Like, you don't know, maybe you're not writing for posterity. And I don't even know what the point is really of writing for posterity because you never know what's going to be, what's going to last. But certain kinds of novels become, it, it, you literally can't read them. It's, it's really fascinating. You can't tell where they were coming from and why. And and that's most true in extreme political moments. So to me, often when you read the fiction of the late 60s, early 70s, illegible. Like yes. you, you have no idea. And I think so much of what has been written in the past, including my novels, I'm sure, proved very, very hard to comprehend in 15 to 20 years because they were so of the moment that it really becomes hard to conceive. Yeah, speaking of Mrs. Dalloway, I just bought a new edition of The Hours that's bound in to a single volume with Mrs. Dalloway. So reading the two in quick succession, which I haven't done in a really long time, but it was really quite satisfying. And The Wife of Wilsden is available in that same, like you have the actual text of The Wife of Bath with your play. The idea that that as an objet, right? Like I just interviewed someone recently, it was Anne Patchett actually, and Our Town factors really heavily in the new novel. And I was like, I haven't read Our Town since I was a teenager. It's really interesting to see how modern that, because I remember thinking, you're pulling my teeth. Like, why? I have no great love for great expectations either. You know, I love books. I do. I love story. I love books. I love voice. But there are certain things where I just have very visceral memories of someone trying to feed me my cultural vegetables and thinking, but why do I need to care? Like, I know you're telling me this is canon, but why do I need to care? And no one, like history teachers kind of got that piece a little faster, but I felt like some of my literature teachers were like, no, you just have to care. <laughs> yeah, and you don't know, there's some things will never go down. Like I can't, I hope the day will come. But for me, Proust is not something that I can do. I know and when sometimes you say that to people and they look at you like you've just, you know, killed their child. His sensibility and mine do not, there's something mm-hmm. that doesn't function. And so sometimes you just, you know, 20 years of trying, you just think, well, between me and you, there will be no accommodation. Other times, like I had it with Dostoevsky, 
you suddenly something clicks and you you get it for the first time in your life. It just depends. Yeah. I have a Lydia Davis translation of the first volume of Proust that I swore I was going to read during lockdown. She might be the answer. I thought about that. Maybe yeah. I started it and I will go back to it, but I would also really like to have time to reread a little Balzac and a little Flaubert. Like that's sort of, if I'm going to go there, like those are the guys I want, or, you know, going back to Hilary Mantel for a second, a place of greater safety. Like she made me care about the French Revolution in ways that no one had ever been able to get me to care about the French Revolution before. And I love those characters. And it's, if you like a big, fat right. and you read fiction. them in new ways. Like I read a lot of Morrison again recently, Tony Morrison. I read those novels as a child. They're just completely different as an adult. Like it's a transformative thing. But there's something about, I mean, reading Morrison really struck me that when you know what you're about, that's not mm-hmm. She knew what she was about. Yeah, totally. It doesn't matter how far the times change. The heart and authenticity of those books stays. It's hard to describe it, even when all facts, all political arguments may have transformed, even the ones about race are not the same. Like They can transform around you, and yet the book stays. And maybe that's just a great, that's just great writing. I think it's partially great writing, but I think Toni Morrison is also the kind of person that you get very rarely in the culture. Unwavering, like just not at all interested in the currents. She just had a project, and that was the end of that was the end of the matter. She began it and she finished it, and that she was just not to be distracted. Yeah. What do you think happens next for you now that you've finally written the historical that you really were not planning on writing? Well, for me, it's more than that. It's okay. more like finally writing a novel that satisfies me. It's it's what I meant to write, and I wrote it. So okay. when you do that. Even if everybody else hates it, it doesn't, it's a big deal for me personally, because I don't have to have regrets. And apart from it being a bit longer than I would it is basically the novel I wanted to write. And it relieved me of a, of a lot of um, childhood confusion, things I never understood about mm-hmm. where I'm from, where my family is from, what Jamaica means to me, what England means to me. I just got out from under it in a way that I find quite freeing. I don't know. I have two novels in mind, but completely different things. But um, I would really like to give myself a break. I would really like to not write for a bit, but I just don't know if that's a viable option for me, (laughs) basically. But I would love just to not do anything for a little bit. Well, you could read a lot. You could read other people's stuff. That's just it. I am so, every day now, it just feels incredible. Like I can wake up and read and that mm-hmm. can be my job and it's very hard for me to has always been to convince myself it's okay just to read for a bit I taught for so many years because it was a way of legitimizing I could say even to my dead father see I've got a job I've got a job I've <laughs> but my father is quite long dead now and I have to say to myself this is my job my real job no it is not a coal mine or whatever my father thought a real job was but it is my job and part of it is reading Yeah. And I think if you're going to hold a mirror up to us, you know, whoever we are, wherever we are, you need the context. I've seen more work recently where the context is kind of missing or it's hard for people to place a larger context. I mean, this goes back to criticism, right? Like there's some criticism I've seen where I'm like, that's a summary of the book. Right. You just told me everything I need to know that happens between page one and whatever the last page is, but you're not giving me the context for the world that this book exists within. And that's the thing that I 
I miss more than anything, honestly, when I'm reading criticism today is just kind of like, where's the rest of it? That's part of a larger problem, which to me is about resistance. It's called resistance, but it's also like existential. And one of the things I have to resist personally is the feeling of being in an eternal present, which I find, I mean, I'm not very, very online, but I'm plenty online. And when I'm online, I feel that the whole machine is to make me feel that there is nothing but now. That is how the algorithm works. That is how it works. When I get emails from young people whose job it is in publishing and they're emailing me at three in the morning, or whatever, I, I know that they are trapped in a system that is unjust. It is unjust. 3 a.m. is not a time to do any work. You are not stuck in the internal present. You have time. Time exists. We have our own time. We have intimate time, work time. They don't own us. They don't own every minute of our space. And so part of it is resistance, saying, and there's been beautiful books about this. Jenny O'Dell's books are so brilliant. Your time, the time where there is no time, and I have to come home from work and then email till three in the morning, that is not human time. That is the time of capital. That is not my time. And it needs to stop. And part of it, that resistance is also saying 2023 is not the only year. There is also 1850, 1720. History exists. It is real. It is separate from the present. That's also resistance. And one of the most beautiful things about doing this book was like following these working class leftist movements back 200 years and thinking, well, how did they work? Because they did work. How did we get the vote, not just for working men, but finally for women and also for black people? And how did that happen? How were the slaves? I don't want to say free because it's not you can't free another man. People are always free. But how did slavery end? How, How did that legally happen? How did these movements work? And one of the things about being caught in an eternal present is you never get to learn that. And the truth is really interesting. The truth is those things happen by mass movements, mass movements of solidarity between people who had almost nothing in common, but came together to make these things happen. So that to me is like a vital lesson. I knew it kind of intellectually, but reading for this book reminded me of it emotionally what the Chartists did, what the abolitionists did, what the slaves did themselves, what Parliament did, what working people did, what the boycotts did. That was a mass movement that took 200 years. So there's, I guess, good and sad news in there, but it's practical news. It's like better than thinking what they're trying to tell you, which is uh, it's a hashtag that'll do. That won't do. The emotion lasts a lot longer than a hashtag, right? Yeah. The emotion of the experience, the emotion of reading this book and connecting with the characters. You know, I knew this was going to happen. I knew we were going to go roaming around the entire sort of catalog of your work. But Eliza is an amazing character. And I love her name. It's a little too Dickensian, but that was her real name. That was her real name. Touche was her real name. But she feels, again, I know I've said this a couple of times in the show, really modern, really modern. And she has a big arc. And so before I let you go, can we just spend some time with her? I I was thinking a a lot about frustration. Everybody feels frustrated. Women perhaps often feel particularly frustrated or say that they do, sometimes under a lot of different commitments. I'm always complaining of, you know, not having enough time and got too many things to do and I've got too many roles. And when I went back to think about Eliza and thought, by how many magnitudes more frustrated must she be without the vote, without access to express herself, without a career, without any means of fulfilling her interests or, you know, the frustration is overwhelming. So 
that interested me. And also one of the things I found most challenging about the contemporary moment is what I understand young people to be saying, which really interested me, is that there is no hierarchy of freedoms. So I grew up in a generation where you subconsciously, I realized, I believed that there is a tidy order to liberation. So first oh. the men, then the women, then the blacks, then the Indians. It's not something anyone ever says to you, but subconsciously when you're reading the history, you come to believe that this is an orderly series of events. And now, you know, mm. homosexuals. And now as if that's just. And what I understood from the moment is that there is an idea that there's no timeline to freedom. This is There's only a radical reversal. Everybody is free. And there is no waiting. No waiting should happen. Freedom is an absolute thing. And I thought as much as people of my generation sometimes roll their eyes at the ahistorical nature of that demand, in terms of justice, it's absolutely correct. They're absolutely correct. There is no order to freedom. So when I came back to Eliza, I thought she's living in a time where you'll constantly be told to wait. The slaves are being told to wait. You're not ready for freedom yet. So you're, so women are being told to wait. You're not ready for freedom yet. You need education. You need time. And Working class men are being told, not yet. The Irish are being told, not yet. So she became the vehicle for all that frustration. What it, would it be like to know that you are free? You are born free. Your freedom is a sacred part of your existence. And yet constantly be told, not now, not now. So to me, she's a woman of the 19th century, but, but that frustration is permanent. Everybody who's ever felt themselves oppressed or unfree knows that feeling of I refuse to wait and the argument she has with Henry who is another character in the book a kind of young mixed race radical is exactly about that and it's an unresolved argument because to me it's unresolved in me like I know freedom is absolute and immediate and I also know that freedom doesn't come without historical processes the two things are true simultaneously so when I was writing the novel those two ideas were in my mind always that this is an absolute. I'm as free as the day I was born. Freedom is mine. No one can give it to me. And at the same time, in the practical terms, you have to fight for it. I cannot wait for readers to meet Eliza. I think The Fraud is one of the best books I've read in recent memory. And not just because I'm sharing a screen with you. It is really <laughs> a big, important, gorgeous, fun, amazing, amazing, amazing book. And it just, it fills in... I think a lot of gaps for people, but, you know, it's possible to just really enjoy a story that's making a lot yeah, of points at the same that, time. That's it. You don't need to, like, I, I thought a lot about the philosophy and politics of it, but the bottom line is a novel's about people. Yeah. The only thing you need is to know and love Eliza. She's very irritating sometimes, but I love her. When I finish this novel, yeah. I miss her so much. I miss spending time with her. And I, that's all I can hope for. for readers. Yeah, I envy all the people who are about to read this book for the first time. Oh, I really, you. I envy them because it was just, it was a blast, this book. Sadie Smith, thank you so much. Yeah. The Fraud is out now. Everything else is out in paperback. And if you haven't read the other stuff, go get that too. Thank you so much. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of wonderful books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of The Fraud. I'm Mark coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Jamie. Hello, Jamie. 
Hi, Mark. I'm Jamie. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Leawood, Kansas. I'm going to go ahead and kick things off. I am always excited to talk about Zadie Smith, to celebrate Zadie Smith, to anticipate anything new coming from her. I will take what I can get in any dose that I possibly can. And the fraud looks so good. And I was thinking about the historical setting of the fraud, the themes of class disparity, the roles of women in historical settings. And it made me think of a book I read a while back called Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rhys. And I think it's an interesting fit as far as a slim but very powerful treasure. This book is essentially a prologue to Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. I think a lot of us know about uh, Rochester's cuckoo crazy wife who is living in the attic. But who was she before this? And how did she get to this mental state. Cut to several years prior, where a young woman named Antoinette Causeway, living in the Caribbean, and is essentially sold into marriage to a young and opinionated and very proud Mr. Rochester. Their kind of very quick whirlwind, I wouldn't even call it a honeymoon. I would just say the, the beginnings of their relationship together is immediately fraught. The cultural constraints on women, the societal butchery of sex and wifedom. I mean, not to mention a spouse whose, I think, understanding of humanity and perspective is limited at best. It's no wonder that uh, Antoinette tries to set fire to their house. Rochester is kind of a turd. I, I could probably talk about how he sucks for days, um, but I do love Jane Eyre. And I think this is just an interesting take on how this came to be, how this one plot piece, where it came from. And I think it does such a good job because you don't have to have read uh, Jane Eyre in order to appreciate this book. I think. The language is beautiful. I think the sense of place and time feels very effortless. And it's got a dreaminess to the writing style that I think is perfect for talking about the unraveling of the mind of a woman who is basically stuck. It's essentially a big gothic epic told in like a little under 200 pages. Uh, I love an economy of language, and I think Jean Reese does it so, so well. So, Please, please, please check out Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Reese. Jamie, what do you have for us? Um, well, first of all, Wide Sargasso Sea. That was one of the first books I read in college. I went to a women's college, so maybe not surprising that we focused on books like that. But yeah, that's that one holds a, a special place in my heart. I think it may be the first book I read at, at college, and it was an assignment. And uh, I'm with you. I'm in the Zane, Zadie Smith uh, fan club for sure. And when I was thinking about the fraud and what I was going to recommend, I had this kind of recollection, not as far back as college, but sort of a tickle somewhere back there in my memory of this book. And, and I was finally able to grab onto the title. And then I was pretty excited because uh, I get to talk about the um, 2003 Lambda Award winning book, um, The Book of Salt by Monique Trong. We're headed to 1920s and 30s Paris. So it's always going to be fascinating. Add to that, we're in quite famous company because our protagonist, Ben, um, works as a cook for none other than the novelist Gertrude Stein and her lover, Alice B. Toklas. And in this 
sort of fictionalized, well, not sort of, very fictionalized bit of real history. Ben, who is a gay man in exile from his home in French-colonized Vietnam, is witness to the famous literary salons of the Madame, who were known for hosting the likes of Hemingway and Picasso and Fitzgerald, right? And at the outset, the couple has announced their intention to leave for America, uh, which leaves Ben sort of stranded. He has a choice to make. Is he going to stay in France where he'll always be an outsider? Is he going to go to America and start all over again, but without the sort of specter of the French colonization of Vietnam looming over him all the time? Or is he going to return to his home in Saigon? And as he contemplates leaving, he examines how, how he got to where he is. He's literally looking through photographs and remembering. And we learn a lot about him and where he came from. His strict Catholic father, who he calls the old man, who disapproved of all of his choices and who disowned him when he found out that Ben was gay. He recalls his French lover in Vietnam who broke his heart. And the French people in France who see him just as an, any other Indo-Chinese person and not the man he has fought hard to be. And it's all told in this sort of beautiful flurry of reminiscences mixed with scenes from the present at the Stein's famous apartment on uh, the Rue de Fleur. This is a really moving and stylish novel, and it's more focused on setting and history and character development than plot, probably. But I personally, I love a, a good character study. And I found the historical elements had me running to look up the real places and names as I read. And I think that's probably why it stuck with me for 20 years. So again, that one is The Book of Salt by Monique Trung. Oh, such a good book. Oh my God. All right. I think that you win. I love Wide Sargasso Sea, but... <laughs> Ah, oh, the book of salt is so They're good. Good books. Uh, yeah, we win. To go back in time and read a few. Absolutely. That are brand new too. I feel yeah. like I need to. That's one I've been wanting to revisit for a while. All right. Well, that is all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Port Over. Uh, please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes and Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Jamie. You can follow my home store at BN Leewood KS. Thanks for tuning in, everybody, and happy reading. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.